Support for Longform this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, one of three hosts of the show. Joining me are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Happy New Year, you guys. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Hey, guys. 2022. 2022 change is in the air. Indeed. Uh, People have already heard that change uh, in the form of uh, our new music. You'll be hearing some more new interludes as the program progresses. But there are actually some larger, more uh, fundamental changes to long form that we should we should probably address. I'm not sure, Max, I'm not sure everyone is actually aware that in addition to this podcast, uh, longform.org existed as a website previously, a website that recommends articles. I'm trying to remember, how how long have we been doing that? First post was April 2010. That long. Since <laughs> April 2010, we've been posting new articles every single day, which is a lot of articles if you do the math. Uh, we posted a letter today on the website saying that we are actually shutting that down. But do not worry, we will continue to do this podcast every week as always. Yeah, podcast isn't going anywhere. New episodes every Wednesday, but uh, no more longform.org, no more article recommendations. And I'd just like to say a couple of things. One is 12 years is many, many more years than we ever thought that this thing would last when we started it. And, and the reason that it lasted so long was this incredible group of people who contributed to it in all kinds of different ways. We had editors who picked stories. We had writers and editors across journalism who would recommend stuff to us. We had dozens and dozens of recommendations every day. We used to have an app. Do you remember that? We had two apps, man. <laughs> two apps. Two apps. We, we've had apps. I feel like, I mean, part of the story here is that we've lived through like, you know, many eras of the internet and, um, and longform.org is, I think, pretty clearly from a different internet than the one we are currently living on. And so felt like time, but man, um, just an incredible, incredible run. So much longer than I ever would have expected. And and uh, I just want to say thanks to everyone who was a part of it. Thank you to everyone who contributed. And thank you to everyone who ever had an article featured on it. It's how I discovered 
many great writers. Which brings me to a question, Evan. Who is on the show this week? <laughs> this week, uh, I'm very excited to have Abe Streep. And Abe is a writer that I've known for many years. He has written a lot of wonderful magazine stories, many of which were recommended on longform.org, no doubt. Um, he's written for Outside, for The New Yorker, for The Atavist magazine, uh, where I used to work, and for The New York Times magazine. And then he took a story that he'd written for The Times magazine and turned it into an amazing book that came out last year called Brothers on Three. And just to give you a little background, it's about a high school basketball team from the Flathead Indian Reservation in Montana and their pursuit of greatness of state championships. They're led by a star whose name is Philip Molitaire, whose name comes up in Abe and My Conversation. And it's also about the whole community and what it's like to be a teenager in that community and in the world in general, and even the complexity of trying to write about it all from Abe. And he really invested a lot in, the, in this reporting and writing and thinking about it. And I wanted to talk to him about all of that. I should also say the book is about some of the challenges that that community faces, including a suicide cluster at the time Abe was writing it and some of the kids' relationship to that. And we talk about some of that in this interview. And I just find Abe to be an incredibly thoughtful person who approaches his work with a lot of humility. And it was a pleasure to have this conversation with him. The show is brought to you in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make the show. Thanks to them. And now here's Evan with Abe Streep. Abe, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, it's good to see you. Um, you're in Santa Fe, right? I'm speaking to you in Santa Fe. Yep. And I now I think of you now as a as a person of the West. But I, how long have you been out there? I have been out. Uh, I moved to Santa Fe, I guess, in 2007. But then I've also lived in Wyoming and spent some time in Montana. And also back in New York. So, yeah, I don't know that it's fair to say I'm a person of the West, but I live in New Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> For those of us who live in New York, you appear to be a person right, of the right. West. But you also, I mean, you've you've written a lot about the West. And I'm, I'm interested first just what, what kind of drew you out there in the first place. Like what attracted you to even just to living in Santa Fe? To moving here? Yeah. Well, gainful employment, <laughs> you know. I uh, I got a job at Outside, which is what brought me here. I had been working at Men's Journal as a as a assistant, and I applied for a, a job and got a job editing at the time the fitness and travel service coverage, and then eventually got to work on some work on longer stories while at Outside. What sort of sent you down the path? I mean, you could have sort of become an editor and stayed an editor. And what diverted you back down the path? It, was it sort of you always wanted to return to being a writer and editing didn't appeal to you? Or what kind of sent you back in that direction? I think that I always did want to write. And I don't think that I was at a certain point confident enough to say that. And I was, and, and I was very fortunate at outside to be able to write some stories and to work with great editors there to learn from editor, great editors like Elizabeth Hightower and Chris Kyes. 
And I also think that there's a certain kind, when you're on staff and you're juggling a lot of deadlines, there's a certain kind of story you can do. And then I'm interested more these days by stories that take a long time and are in some manner sort of amorphous. And those are hard to do when you're on, you know, juggling top edit deadlines. So I think I always wanted to write. And then it took me a while, sort of a late bloomer and acknowledging that and being confident enough to say that. So when you kind of made the leap, do you remember, was there a story or a moment where you felt like I've found it, I'm doing it. This is the thing I was looking for. Not really. I was outside was very generous and I had like, I was a contract writer for a year. So I, when I decided I was going to leave editing, they were very kindly gave me work for, so I had a certain amount of words to do. And some of that was narrative and some of that was service stories like best jobs and things like that. So I was very fortunate. And I don't know if this is your experience, but I think that for me, it took a while to figure out what kind of story I'm less bad at, what kind of story I'm drawn to and, and can manage to do in an adequate way or, or try to. And I, and I did, uh, I, outside, I was drawn to some of the environmental coverage. And that was partly because I was less fluent in some of the sports that, that outside covers. So I kind of thought I wanted to, and I had studied with uh, Sue Halpern and Bill McKibben in the first journalism class I took in college. So I kind of thought I wanted to write environmental issue pieces, but I didn't really know that that's not necessarily what I'm good at. And um, it took a little while to try different stories and figure out different ways of writing. So how would you describe now what you're good at? I have what I believe you're good at, but you, I want to hear what you think you're good at. Oh, oh no, you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have to go first. I might poison the well with my theory. I think that I'm interested by stories that are about people and place and the ways in which history winds through all of our lives and power dynamics, community and power dynamics. I, what I really like is when you go and kind of embed in a community that you're not from and really putting yourself inside of it and then kind of like giving us like a portrait of something that's happening inside of a, a community. Yeah. A s story that sort of was really freeing uh, in a lot of ways to us to write about minor league baseball team in New Mexico and a, the, the Santa Fe Fuego. Yeah. A real favorite of mine, that story. Absolutely love that story for the Atavist. It's interesting that the baseball one was one of the early ones because that was kind of, it was on the less serious side. But if I recall correctly, were you already a fan of the team? Is that how it came about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and what made you think that there was a story there? I think part of it was just a feeling, like the, the atmospheric feeling of being at those games. There was something there. And just the sort of passion that those players had for what they were doing, even like all the very obvious signifiers and odds against them, you know, like they were, they would clean up after the game for the fans and they were making something around $50 a week and were staying at homestays and they were doing it because they loved it. So there was something with a lot of heart in that. Yeah. We should say, I guess the Santa Fe Fuego was a, was like class a, like the lowest level 
they were the they were the last place team in the lowest level of independent league baseball during that year. Yeah, yeah, and like so that that fact you can have a lot of fun as a storyteller with that fact, but that's just one tiny fact that is a way into a world. And hopefully you you know treat people with dignity and not have too much fun with that fact, if that makes sense. But trying to tell a story in an inside out way with a community is and with some sense of heart on the terms of the people who are living it is something that I try to aspire to do. I mean, that baseball story contained for me, one of the all time great characters who was like this bank manager who basically had spent his whole adult life trying to make it in baseball and gone in and out. And now he was like 45 or 48 at the time. Yeah, He was uh, on the highest possible end of still trying to, play baseball that hadn't been married didn't have a family and also like had a lot of the team sleeping on the floor of his house. And I remember him being like so funny, but also I could really connect with him. Like that desire to just kind of like find the thing that he was looking for ever since he was a little kid. And the question I was getting to is how do you kind of come out of immersing yourself in that community and write about those people without in a way that's, that's, real and fun and has your own voice, but doesn't feel like it's betraying them. Yeah. I mean, that's something I think about a lot. I think that if a story is shared with you, then that's something to take really seriously. That's a gift. And I think that there's a way, I hope that there's a way in which when you tell a story, someone can recognize themselves in, in their complexities and in their humanity. And can say, yeah, that's that's me. And thinking about the questions of what belongs in a story, what doesn't, what's crucial to the story that you're telling, what's not. There's no such thing as as nonfiction. I don't think there's such thing as nonfiction where everybody's just happy with everything. But I think that there's respectful nonfiction and there's careful nonfiction and and keeping in mind that it's collaborative. Well, that seems, I mean, that's, it's particularly relevant, I think, to your book. But before we get into that in reference to your book, I do want you to set up a little bit how, how it all came about, because you describe in the book, like driving along the highway and seeing a sign in Montana. And so first, I'm curious what you were doing in Montana at that time in the first place, and then how that led to a story. I had been living in Wyoming. My partner and I had been living in Wyoming, and she went overseas on a reporting project for a couple of months. And and in doing so, she left her job at Wyoming Public Radio. And so we decided that we were going to make a change and move. We had left our our place and our, our stuff was in storage. And I moved, I went to Montana temporarily to work on a story for article about refugee resettlement for Harper's. And I was reporting on that article when I learned about the Arley Warriors. And what was the sign? What did the sign say? You know, 2016, 2017 Arley Warriors state champions. And I just want to pause for a second there and just say that I just want to thank anyone in Arley who's, who might listen to this um, because it is the, this team is the community's team and this story is the community's story. And I shared the parts that were shared with me and did my best with it. 
Yeah. I mean, that's part of what I, what I want to talk to you about is how you navigated that and how you were, you were able to do that. Cause some of that, how, how you do it kind of comes up in the book as well, but not to, I don't want to fixate on the sign too much, but I mean, a lot of, a lot of reporters could have driven past that sign. You could have driven past many signs that said state champion, <laughs> whatever, football, basketball, it, like, what do you think it was that lodged it in your mind? I don't know that it, I just looked it up because, well, I mean, I love basketball. I really like basketball or sports, you know, obviously my dad was a basketball coach. So I, I went to Kalispell to report and I was in a fairgrounds parking lot, Googled the team on the, the phone. And I saw that one of the players who had been a junior in that year was a college prospect who had a serious, well, a number of players are college prospects, I should say, but one of the players had these eye-popping statistics, like he nearly averaged a triple-double, which is crazy. <laughs> it's really good, you know? Um, and so that's Philip Molitaire. And so I, I proposed an article about the team tied to Philip's college prospects and efforts to be recruited. And I, but I also completely missed everything uh, about this team by the idea of proposing a story about one player. So that was the beginning of a long and ongoing process in education. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something. Like very quickly, the voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of long form get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com.
When you arrived in the community and started talking to people, when did you sort of come up against a realization that the story was not exactly what you'd proposed or was much more than what you had proposed? Well, I think that's the case in every, in most stories that it, what you initially think changes. And I think it's when those changes start to happen in your mind and then, then the work can start. Right. But I reached out to the coach of the team and the superintendent of the school, the coach Zane and Pitts and David Whitesell, who at the time was the superintendent and the father of a great player on the team, Greg Whitesell. So we had discussions and then I met with the Molitaires with uh, John and Becky Molitaire, Philip's parents and met with Philip Molitaire and all the other guys in the team. And I, I had, when I initially proposed the article, I was unaware that they had won this, this first championship. There had been a suicide cluster within the community. And yeah, so I was not aware of that when I started the project, but I soon became aware of it. And at that time had a moment of wondering if I should move forward it, with it. And I've had many of those moments over the last years. Was the community in the first instance encouraging of you to to do the story or resistant to you doing the story? I I can't speak for the community, but my um I I was welcomed by the coach of the team and the superintendent of the school. He David Weitzel, he had concerns, but and they were also very proud of, of justifiably of what the kids had accomplished. And there's a moment I write it about in the book where I met with the Molitaires and and John says, I, you know, what I want to know is what this story is about. And he says, uh, and that's Philip's father. And he says, you know, it was about about these boys, about these boys from our league. And that was a line that stuck with me. What was your experience of, I mean, I think reporting on younger people can be very challenging. I mean, outside of the other challenges of going to report on a community that you're not a part of, and we can talk about that too, but just teenagers or, or in this case, young men, it's, it's a time in life where like, if a reporter shows up, I just don't know how I would have responded as a teenager to like someone sitting around asking me questions all the time. And I'm wondering what your, what, what is your approach when you're kind of spending time with them? Meaning like, is it trying to just hang out with them and let, let things develop or is it, or were they kind of, let's schedule a time to sit down and actually answer questions. Like you are trying to portray them as fully as possible. And I'm, I'm just interested in how you do that. I think it's the former is just hanging out, try not to be super intrusive. And, and obviously as a reporter, there's times when you have to ask questions I spent a lot of time at practices and there were times when these guys would say completely <laughs> teenage things. Like there's a moment where one of the guys is like proposing getting a tattoo on his forehead or something, you know? Right. And, <laughs> um, and then there's also moments where they were just a couple of the guys would say the most intelligent and wise things. And you'd say, Oh my God, you're 18. A few people had asked, had said to me, like, I wish I knew, why basketball? Why basketball? And I, I wanted to know that. And I sort of just at a certain point asked Phil and Will, who are the captains of this team. And 
And Phil's answer was a little bit of a sports star answer. You know, Will says, hold on, I'll grab it. I don't know, man, just something I grew up with. It either runs in your family or it don't. He paused, and it's pretty fun too. The ball spun off his fingertips, quote, but it can also break your heart. So sometimes there would be these smack your forehead teenage moments, and sometimes it, it was a lot different. Yeah. And there's one moment with Greg where there's, you know, a personal story of his. And if I'm remembering correctly, in in the magazine story, you read a little account of the story. But in the book, you actually have your back and forth with him about whether or not he is sort of ready for you to tell that story. And even outside of that specific instance, how did you sort of generally confront the idea that sometimes teenagers might want to talk about something and then regret it later, which is true of any source you might talk to. But often if you're talking to a media savvy person for a story and that person later says, oh, I wish I hadn't told you that, you might say, uh, well, I'm sorry, you knew you knew what was going on here. You know, if you're talking about a powerful person or a politician, but here you're dealing with these kids. And so how did you deal with the the issue that they may not even be acting in their own best interest in some way, but who are you to determine what their best interest is in the first place? Yeah. When I was thinking about that, I talked with Greg's family, his, his, his mother and his father. I talked with him. I asked him to, in, in accordance with his mom's wishes, asked him three times whether he wanted it in there. At a certain point in one of our conversations, I was very blunt with him saying, you know, you see me as a friend, but sharing this with me is sharing it with the world. And he sounded as the more we spoke, the more firm he sounded with it, that he thought it could help someone. And I also talked to a mental health expert who has worked in suicide prevention from another community and asked some insights about that. And also, I mean, I should say, maybe it's worth saying here that suicide is something that has affected my family. And so this, some of the the families in the book welcomed me like you would family. So I kind of just thought it, tried to think about it in terms of how would, how might I want my family reported on? And I think when you're writing about difficulties, there's always questions of, is it, how is it being conveyed? Is it, what are the words being used on page? Is it being conveyed in a, with a hardness? Is it being leering? Those are things that I would hope to try not to do. And let's not forget that Greg is an incredible basketball player and a really intelligent guy and designs really wonderful shoes these days. He's got an amazing artistic eye. All that is to say that we're talking about the most difficult part of this story, but there's a lot in here that's not about that. And I think it's important in any of our lives, if somebody were reporting on the most difficult part of my or your life, then you might also want the to see a more fulsome picture and to understand that that's only a part of your life and it doesn't define you. That, those are things that I thought about. Yeah. I mean, there's such a, there's such an amazing sports story at the heart of this and it's such an incredible team, but then your lens kind of, you know, moves in and out and around the community in different ways. And there's this kind of issue over it all, you know, 
you're a white guy showing up to a native community and trying to portray it. And even that you struggled with deciding whether to do that. And how did you kind of approach it for yourself? Yeah. I mean, it's something that I kept me up at night for a long time. Still, I still think about, yeah, there's a a legacy of outside reporters writing in a manner that might cause harm or being exploitative and imposing their own, their own hopes on, or expectations of what something like success might mean on people for whom those ideas might matter, might not matter, you know? So I, I tried to, to read and to, to think about it seriously. You know, Vine Deloria Jr. and Custer Died for Your Sins has a very memorable passage about anthrop- in the chapter Anthropologists and Other Friends about this. And this is written de- decades ago. And it's a, everyone should, li- should, should, should read it if you haven't. Uh, very memorable skewering of like the outside colonial gaze. So try not to do that. What are the methods in trying not to do that? I don't know that I can, it's not answer that. I don't know that it's a forensic thing. Like it's not, I just, in any reporting, try to be myself and be as honest as possible with people and try to work in a way that's in some way like inside out. Like, have you ever gone into a reporting project where you don't have certain built-in ideas or expectations, even if you don't are not aware of them going in, like without having some sort of implicit? Have I ever gone in without them? Yeah. I mean, I feel like you always, you always sort of like aspire, or I, I would say I always aspire to, you know, I'm going in with an open mind and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find out what happened here, despite what I might already know, but you can't get around the fact that you do already know something by virtue of that's how you got the assignment from someone to go do it is you, you told a little story about what happened to someone else, an editor who then approved. So you are, you're always going in with some, some notion of what at least you hope happened or what you hope you can turn into a story. And I think the part of the process for me is trying to put that aside and truly listen to people. Right. Exactly. I think it's like, once you start to, recognize the ideas that I arrived with and that they're getting complicated and might be entirely wrong, (laughs) then that's when I think that you can almost start to work in something for me like this. Earlier, you mentioned collaborative storytelling. So what did you mean by that in, in this context? How does it apply to this context? As reporting, as an observer, and, you know, in the historical sections that that's historical reporting that is largely based on tribal sources. And when I refer to, when I say collaborative storytelling, I think that that's the nature in any work of uh, immersive journalism where you're tied in with people very deeply. And I think that for someone to share, especially when it comes to personal stories, personal or family stories, or stories that involve difficulties. For someone to share that with me as an outsider is a serious thing. For me to share something like that without 
permission or consent, consent and collaboration would never be done. Like it just would never happen. So that sort of sense of, you know, the way journalists talk about, did you get the story, right? That's not how I see this or, and that would be extractive in this setting, I think. So if someone shares something serious and personal with me, that's a serious matter. It's a gift and you got to treat it with great respect. When did you feel you'd gotten to a point where you could sit down and, and write the book? Like where you had, you'd, you'd traveled far enough and knew enough that you were ready to do it. From a, I think there's a couple ideas to address in that question. So from a story level, it was, I felt like it was important to see Will and Phil and Greg and Lane and all these guys make choices of self about, you know, I, I see it in many ways as a book about self-determination and see people make choices about how to be because they had been part of this as team of teams, the most astonishing team. I won't, you know, let's not glance over the absolute stunning dominance of this team, right? <laughs> um, they would say brothers on three, family on six, and they go out and buy, win by 40 points, 50 points, 60 points, 70 points, right? They were so good. They got <laughs> accused of running up the score. It seemed like on a fairly regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, and playing their own style, playing on their terms, not on the terms that have been dictated by those around them, by society at large. And I think that that's a big thing. Uh, the project, the you know, basketball can be a, is a distillation of larger ideas here. And these guys keep running in, up into obstacles on the court. Those take the form of overt glaring racism in the stands. They take the form of refs before the game, the coach prays, let the refs keep up. And he meant it because the, the refs are the gatekeepers. They enforce the rules and they don't, a lot of them do not understand what the team, the, it, it takes the form of media representation. There are frustrations within the community about a lack of understanding. And then beyond basketball, these, there are all these obstacles. So the, the, and the guys keep coming through them, right? And they keep coming through them. And it's very in inspiring to see that. But I think part of the book was to, the project of the book is to say, not only look at these guys keep coming through them and making their own powerful choices, but as they're navigating these obstacles, but where are the obstacles coming from? How are they historically rooted? How are we all culpable in those obstacles? Uh, a, there's, a, there's a long and glaring recruiting gap, especially in, in the state, especially on the men's basketball side, to think about that and report that out took a, a long time. I wasn't able to write until I kind of, until I saw some of these guys make these very powerful choices that, that carry them beyond just being a state champion. Cause being a state champion is, is even a repeat state champion is a wonderful empowering thing. And there's also more to life. And then there was a, and then I spent a long time visiting with people, talking with people about, what should be in the book, what should not, asking for the blessing of the, the you know, the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes is a sovereign nation with a government-to-government -government relationship with the United States. There's an Elders Cultural Advisory Council for the Culture Committee. I met with them 
and asked for their blessing and assistance in this project, which they graciously granted. And there was also a moment in the book that I addressed in the author's note when I considered leaving and not writing the book and had a number of frank conversations with people, including one that is in the author's note with Will Mesteth Jr., who's a really inspiring, remarkable young man, and ultimately decided to move forward with it. And like I say, did my best and tried to do it, do, do some justice to this most incredible team. And if I did, if that didn't result in that on page, there's, that's only on me. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. <laughs> Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden, but this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there's no way that, that Israel should be able to participate in Eurovision. Pro-Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. There's a moment where, you know, the team is putting together videos about suicide prevention. You know, your magazine story comes out and also they're getting a lot of attention and it all gets so like knotted up and they go to Nike and there's all this kind of like show around them and, you know, the executives are there and everything and they're, they're kind of asked to talk about themselves. And then at one point you just say like, I felt sad. And I felt that that was the first time that I felt your like emotions coming through or your, your explicit view of what was going on. I was very curious about that decision to kind of bring that forth in that moment. Well, I think that it was just 
the truth in that moment of how I felt. And that's not to pass judgment. I think it's just the truth. And um, it was a moment where it felt as though something that had been very spontaneous and from the heart because of these outside forces became in some manner rehearsed or presented. That's also just what happens with success, right? And I think that for these guys to get the opportunity to go to Nike, that's great. And I think there's also just, there was something so deeply true about those moments in with the guys and the, like they're making these videos in the hallway before the game. And now we're at Nike and it's a corporate setting and it's, everything is just so, and it's, you know, I think it's, it was just my response to a reality that I think that corporate truth is just rarely the full truth. There are also, you know, there are other famous books in which sports and community are a big part of the book. Friday Night Lights comes to mind, for instance, or the Darcy Frey book about basketball. Like there are these books that have looked at, you know, high school sports or youth sports and community. Did you find yourself feeling like you're in conversation with those books trying or trying to avoid being in conversation? Yeah, I so I actually, and also Counting Coup, right, which is um, a book that was written a couple decades ago, set on the Crow Reservation. And I haven't read that, and I haven't read Friday Night Lights, and I haven't read The Last Shot, and those are intentional choices. I read a few passages from Counting Coup, and I was aware of the, some of the public backlash. And, you know, at a certain point, my partner was like, we should watch Friday Night Lights. And I just, I couldn't, I just couldn't watch, you know, I watched like a couple episodes I mean, it's it so good, but I just, I, yeah, I haven't read the book. And so you asked about that one specific line and the choice to include it. Honestly, it wasn't, I mean, there were a lot of choices and I worked a lot with editors, um, including uh, Taryn Andrews, who's a documented descendant of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes, without whom this book wouldn't exist. And so there was a lot of like intellectual choices about what to include, what not. But in the writing part, it was just as, be as honest and as possible and everything about this team was from the heart and so i tried to write in a way that was more concerned with that than that was necessarily like concerned with the discussions from the outside world if that makes sense so like not reading those books is, was was part of that i read a lot of history books I, re I read a lot of articles especially when it comes to recruitment which is something i want to talk about i think it's important you know these these guys these these players are very good at many things. And one of the things that they're very, very good at is winning. And, uh, and the college programs in the state of Montana that have not afforded them equal opportunities are the ones that are missing out. So I did a lot of reading about that. But yeah, I think that part of, I, I can be easily influenced by those outside texts and sources and stuff. So I didn't, I didn't read that book. Mm -hmm. Well, that is a layer, the college recruitment layer is a layer that I think is so different in this story than some of those other sports stories in that as a reader, especially having read the magazine story and then the magazine story, again, the spoiler for those who haven't read it, but it seems like Phil, the superstar of the team that year is going to college to play. And you're imagining that a couple of years from now, we're going to read about this kid playing division one college basketball, but then the, I mean, there's a specific reason why he, that doesn't happen for him, but this sort of larger somewhat more subtle 
racism there that's sort of like not that they're not good enough but like they'll probably go home like they won't stick with it and i'm wondering if you as as a person who became close to them did it become painful for you to like see that in a way that it's painful for the reader really to kind of be rooting for them and then to see that happen well i think that if it's painful for you as a reader then you probably have the answer to your question right but yeah, it was really, I couldn't, I couldn't quite believe when, so a lot of these, the coach of the team, Zane and Pitts had talked about this with me, that there's this unspoken stigma because it wasn't only Phil. Phil is in many ways the most uh, visible. A lot has been asked of him in the state, but there's a lot of really great basketball players in our league. Uh, Tyler Tanner, Cody Tanner, uh, Lane Johnson, Isaac Fisher, Greg Weitzel, and of course, Will Mesteth Jr. And Will you know, in the champ, in the article, there's a college recruiters have come to approach him, had this amazing performance while playing with a kidney stone and walking pneumonia, right? And then he didn't get an opportunity in the state of Montana. I couldn't couldn't believe that, and or I should say, he didn't get the opportunity he deserved. And to see that these things, this people had been talking to me, and to see it happen in real time, yes, it was painful. And it was also part of the project of the book is to try to understand some of the complexities of this and understand and to look at it because it's not just one thing. You know, Will was offered a walk-on redshirt spot at the University of Montana Western. He would not be on a scholarship and he would have to redshirt for a year in part because of academic issues from his freshman and sophomore year of high school. Within that small like snippet of information, there is, I, I think that there is a lack of connection between university programs and non-tribal university programs and in schools like Arlie and communities like Arlie about like what is acknowledged as academic achievement. Within that, there's also Will is tribally enrolled, which means that he was eligible for a tu- tuition waiver. Scholarships are very precious. So he's not offered a scholarship. He's offered a walk-on spot. Was that happening because he's traveling in the world? I do not know. But that also happened with Philip. Philip Molitaire was offered walk-on spots at both the University of Montana and eventually Montana State University. At the time, Montana State had two players, one on the team and one incoming who had been offered scholarships, who were at that time 0-5 against Philip Molitaire. There's a moment in the book where a coach of Montana Tech is recruiting Phil and the coach is at a game and Becky's, Philip's mom is sitting with him and she's just talking about Will. She's just like very, very unsubtly being like, you should recruit Will because <laughs> he's really great. And they grew up together playing their whole lives and their cousins. Take them both. Yeah. Right. So that didn't happen. Now, maybe it, from a pr- perspective of a coach who might not have thought about it in depth, it might seem like a lot to be asked to recruit multiple kids from one high school in Montana, but also maybe it's not, maybe it's not a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, this actually leads me to a very, uh, just a practical question, which is, I was always curious how often you were there for all the games and in the locker room versus relying on people, you know, taping taping parts that you couldn't see like how, how much how much of those live games did you see live uh, i saw a lot of them live and then i also there was a for the playoff games there was a video streaming service where i had access to that and rewatched it many many times 
and audio and there was audio so audio recording going on as well and were you sort of living up there i i wouldn't say that i i rented a room in a, in a house on the on the reservation for for periods of time sometimes uh, a week sometimes a month you know but then i would come home to new mexico you write that the story and reporting the story and working on the story changed you i mean any story is probably going to change you but you, you you specifically say it changed you i'm paraphrasing here but changed your outlook also changed the way you write and i'm wondering if you can elaborate on that how, how did this story in particular change you and the way you write i don't know that i have a succinct answer to that we got time yeah um partly there's a lot of characters in the book there's the, some people have said that they might find it hard to follow you know but that's intentional to have a lot of characters i mean philip Maltair was very clear that he was in favor of the book thought it would be a, in his words a good story and wanted it to be to more fully include the other guys and in terms of how to write how i wrote i it's something that i was trying to allude to earlier and it's just trying to write in a way that feels like what it feels like to be there and to be welcome there and to just tell the truth about that from the heart to try to not to be like thinking about the journalistic world that you and I spend a lot of time in to just be thinking about this community and how things are. Some people who have read the book have said they find these guys' stories inspiring. I certainly do. And I think that part of the reason is because they keep overcoming obstacles. They keep overcoming adversity. But to just find that inspiring and take some inspiration from that without really doing some thinking and research about why those obstacles are there, why those they keep coming up, why that flood keeps coming, and to not think about your own all of our own role in that is not adequate. So that's part of the chain of like, I think that within a larger conversation that many of us are having and thinking about in journalism or immersive journalism, how does it perpetuate certain power dynamics? How can it be extractive? How can it be colonial? How can it not? Those are some of the things that I've been thinking a lot about. And I think that I hope that, because I think again, basketball is a, is a distillation of the larger ideas and I hope that people look at those, those, those obstacles that are there and think about it a lot. And what is your ongoing relationship with the community and with, with those, you know, now young men or just men, uh, a little bit later and, and post the, the book coming out? Uh, our, our relationship is ours. That's fair. But as a, as a reader, I also do want to know, I'm driven to know if they're still playing basketball. Well, yes, they are still playing basketball. And I, um, you know, the epilogue of the book is called We're Still Playing. And they're always playing in three-on-threes and winning. But uh, Will Mestith Jr., you know, at a certain point in the book said to me, I'm not going to be in the NBA. And it was a moment of clarity when he sort of talked about other more significant dreams. And he wanted to get a college degree. This is the kid who was failing all these classes in his freshman and sophomore year of high school who everyone went bet against. And he recently graduated with his associates. He got academic honors on the way. He was academic all conference in 
practice conference while playing college basketball. And Philip Molitaire took a year off of playing and worked on the National Bison Range, which the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes have taken control over and are now managing. And he, Philip, decided to return to basketball. He got an opportunity to play uh, at Eastern Oregon University, and he is averaging nearly 18 points a game. He was recently his conference's player of the week. He also recently beat Montana Tech. <laughs> the team that uh, he didn't play for. Yeah, it was really, it was powerful to see these guys to be welcomed in, uh, for part of the time when these guys are outlining their own roots to success in their own terms that are their own and that are, that are individual and also rooted in where they come from and who they are. Well, Abe, thank you very much for taking the time. It's great to see you. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me and reading it and thinking about it. That's it for this week's show. Thanks to Abe Streep for coming on. His book is called Brothers on Three. Go check it out if you have not. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks to our editor this week, Jackie Sajiko, and to our intern, Susan Peterson. Thanks to our partners at Vox, and thanks to you for listening. I'm Evan Ratliff, and we will see you next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.